writing this, Paul essentially, uh, in essence, gives us somewhat of a template for how to encourage generosity, how to uh, raise money, how to do a church fundraiser, for lack of a better word. And, and, and that's something that has been um, interesting to me, something I've looked into because I'm involved in church fundraising uh, initiatives, specifically with uh, Church of Christ India. And it's not something that I necessarily uh, am wired to want to do. I'm not necessarily by nature a sales person. Uh, I never enjoyed school or sport fundraisers growing up. I don't enjoy school and sport fundraisers with my children now. I hope we don't have to do too many of those. Uh, it's not something I like. Uh, but, you know, if we don't do a good job with those fundraisers, you know, that my kids might not get new uniforms. If we don't do a good job with church fundraising, people might not hear the gospel. It's life and death, and so it's something that I'm compelled to do. It's something as I've gone to India, and I've seen people, and I've seen what little amounts of money can do, can go a long ways in India. I am inspired, I am motivated to come back and go to bat for those people, to go around the brotherhood and, and uh, across the states and give India presentations, and some of the same information a lot of times, and, and try to encourage people and let people know of the, the opportunity the privilege we have to make some of the best investments we could ever make in, in what that can accomplish and what that can do. And so I'm always looking for fresh ways to go about doing that, how to be effective in doing that. And so, you know, as I've, I've looked at this, uh, Paul essentially doing a church fundraiser, I wonder how we would do it. And then I wondered how, I'm, how I've been doing it. How do we encourage Christians to uh, give willingly, eagerly, joyfully, because Paul said it's no good for the giver. We want fruit that abounds to their account to be blessed to give. It's no good if we don't do it eagerly, willingly, joyfully. So how do we encourage people, not coerce or strong arm or guilt trip people into being generous, but to do that with joy so that we fulfill the, the mission of the church? You know, studies on this subject aren't always very popular, so maybe I shouldn't be excited to give this study this morning, but I am. But you know what i found is that people are actually, there are some people that are, uh, that do find this subject appealing. And you know who enjoys these subjects? You know who wants people to preach and talk about giving constantly? People who are generous. Because they've discovered the truth of Acts 20 verse 35, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. How it's changed and transformed their life and blessed their life like virtually nothing else could. And they want people, it's like when you find something that works, when you find a product that has changed your life, what do you want to do? You want to tell people, especially that you care about, hey, you got to try this. you got to try this. And so it is popular with people who are generous. It's not popular maybe with people who are stingy or who are misers, who maybe are convicted or haven't experienced or found the joy of Acts 20, verse 35, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so while it's, uh, it's not always popular, maybe we don't preach on it, maybe we don't talk about it as much as we should, stewardship is one of the most important and often discussed subjects in the entire Bible. Go check me on that. How often the Bible talks about money. Half of Jesus' parables relate to money. Some estimate that one out of every six verses in the New Testament relate to money. You know, there are a lot of topics that we would deem essential, although anything in the Bible, anything from God's Word, in a sense, is essential, is a salvation issue. We don't get to pick and choose. But things that we, we think, this is really important. This is really critical. We really need to understand this and implement this. 
And you could take a lot of those subjects and the amount of verses on those subjects, and you could add them up, all of those different subjects, and they wouldn't add up to the amount of verses on money. Why so many? Evidently, God knew this would be a big problem. This would be a tremendous temptation, a tremendous challenge for us. And so He's given us a lot of instruction on money. You know, we think about and we deal with money constantly. Think about every day how often you think about money, how often you interface with money. It's something that we are dealing with all the time, every day. Think about this. Do you think about God, the church, evangelism, ministry, your family more, or money more? And it's like any issue, potentially a salvation issue. We see that in the Old and New Testament, examples of people who, in part, lost their salvation or the potential for, because they have their relationship with money. One of the classic examples of that that immediately comes to mind is the rich young ruler. He had a lot of things going for him. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. All these things I've kept from my youth up. And Jesus didn't correct him in that. One place, I think it's in Luke's account, says he loved him. But he said, one thing you lack. One thing. I wonder if one thing is holding us back. I wonder if this one thing is holding us back. His relationship with money that God had entrusted to him. And the problem wasn't how many things he had. The problem was how many things had him. And very few people like this young man realize that money is their God. Money is their master. Jesus said in the parable of the sower that the riches are deceitful. How often do we see people come forward to confess the sin of greed and covetousness and stinginess? See people come forward to confess all manner of sin and problems and challenges in their life. But how often do you have, hear people come forward and say, you know what, I want to confess the sin of not being generous? <laughs> because it deceives many of us into thinking we control it when it actually is controlling us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, money has this tendency to rule. It wants to rule. It has a tendency to be a, a slave driver. And money will make a wonderful servant, but it makes a terrible master. And the only way to know that money is not your master is to be a liberal, scriptural giver. Again, a few verses earlier in this same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in, in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How we spend our time and our money tells the story about who we are and about what we're about. As the saying goes, put your hand on a man's pocketbook on their uh, checkbook, in their calendar, and you have your heart, your hand on their heart. What your money goes after reveals what your heart is going after. And Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your heart to go after Him. He cares more than anything else what your heart is after. What we do with money reveals what our heart and what our mind believes, where it believes, uh, hope. Love, 
joy, peace is found. This is a spiritual issue. This is a heart issue. It reveals our heart. It reveals how spiritual we are. And so this is one of the most exciting, life-changing, important studies I could ever preach on. What we do with our money, with God's money, shows what we're doing with God and what we think God's doing with us shows what God is to us. So money and and, and giving of our money reveals a lot of things. Giving is an expression ultimately of worship. Think about in the Old Testament how these offerings, these sacrifices they made were often described as what? Gifts. The wise men that came to, to worship Jesus, they worshiped Him in part how? They presented gifts to Him. Hebrews 13, 16, but do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Our giving, our generosity is part of the sacrifice that we're offering to God. And so you could argue in a sense then that when we fail and we refuse to give cheerfully, as we have been prospered, as we have purposed in our hearts, we are withholding worship from God. And that's a serious issue. So when do we give? 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do as well, on the first day of every week. That's what that phrase means literally in the Greek. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections need to be made when I come. On the first day of every week, notice he says, I've directed you. Not just the church at Corinth, Galatia, all the churches. This was, this was a command. On the first day of the week, you're to give. So when Paul comes, he doesn't have to go house to house and try to scrounge up this collection. Give weekly. Give as you assemble together in a consistent, systematic way. Not just in Corinth, everywhere. And think about the wisdom in that. Are you more likely to give a large lump sum all at once, $1,000 all at once, or more likely to sustain giving smaller, regular, consistent contributions every week. $100 a week for 10 weeks, that adds up to $1,000. Certainly, we can and we should be giving. We should be generous of our time, our talent, our treasure every day throughout the week. But this sets a tone. Where we start the week telling the money who's boss. Tell your money, God's in control, not you. I love and I serve God, not you. How in the world can we participate in the Lord's Supper and then come away from that not being generous? The story of a boy who unfortunately hadn't been taken to church before. This was his first time he was taken to church, and evidently he wasn't impressed because he's groaning, he's sighing throughout the service, and then it's time for the offering, the collection plates to be passed, and he exclaims for all to hear loudly, you mean we have to pay for this? How can we cry and rejoice as we commune with Christ and then turn around and act like we're angry or grieved when the collection plates come around? Who? Every one of you. Who's exempt from that? Who's exempt from each one of you? Sometimes we think, well, if it's a bad, you know, or somebody doesn't have a whole lot. Or The Macedonians were extremely poor, and they gave. We read about a widow who Jesus commended who gave in uh, two mites, 100% of what she had. In 1 Kings 17, we read about a widow and her her child, and uh, there was a famine, they don't have anything, and the prophet Elijah comes and he says, give me some food, and 
It's a test. God's not trying to just take everything and not give. He's trying to bless us with more, to give us more. But it's a test of faith. And she said, well, we, were, we had one meal left. We were going to eat it and die. Is there anybody here that poor? Is there anybody as poor as some of our brethren in India and Nigeria who's uh, fine china as plastic bottles? Who maybe make, uh, maybe we make in one day more than they make the entire year. It is not right. It is not fair for a few to bear virtually the full expense of church work while everybody else free rides. Where do we give? You know, in the Mosaic system, there was a pattern given by God. There was a treasury in the temple. A prophet Malachi, we might uh, talk about in previous or in future studies, talks about bringing your tithe into the treasury. That was a type, a uh, shadow of the church. And the church has a treasury to fund and support and facilitate its financial operations. He says, storing up literally means put into the treasury. Put into the treasury on the first day of the week. And so giving is an expression of our worship, our adoration for God. And it's also uh, giving proof to our love. That's what this message is all about. That's what this text is about. It gives proof of our love. Remember, Paul is trying to raise money. And so he's essentially, again, showing us how to go about doing that. And so let's go through this text and let's make some observations. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Paul starts by telling this amazing story of generosity to influence them, to inspire them, to nudge them, to prod them. But the main point, ultimately, is that generosity is a demonstration of God's grace. That's what Paul does. He always gives God the credit. He always gives God the glory. Generosity is a manifestation of God's grace. It's what God's doing. Verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. God's grace produced generosity in the Macedonians by making them not rich in money, rich in joy. I'm going to tell you, I want that for you. I want that for me. I want that for us so badly. Not necessarily the extreme poverty (laughs) or the severe affliction, although that might be good for us to be honest. But I want the generosity. I want so badly that we would overflow with, with uh, joy, uh, by overflowing, by, by being uh, generous with our time, our talent, our treasure, in service to the Lord, in service to His church, to serve, in service to others, to the lost. Notice the joy in the midst of severe uh, affliction and extreme poverty. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. We think that you either have one or the other. This isn't a great text for uh, perverted versions of the prosperity gospel because the poverty didn't go away. The affliction didn't go away, at least immediately. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. That means voluntarily. Again, that's the emphasis Paul gives. Give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. How does God feel then about those who give joylessly? It's the opposite of love. It's not positive, it's negative. Not coerced. Not by compulsion. How many Christians have a heart to give above and beyond their means? Time, talent, treasure. 
all those different ways, without gimmicks, without pulpit pounding. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the... Paul's not begging them, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You know, I wonder what that would be with... you got to do a church fundraiser. It's having to beg people and strong-arm people. It's not how we should do it. They're begging you, please let us participate. It's almost like Paul, maybe, I don't know if he's, you know, you're too poor to give this much, but they're, they're, they're insisting. That's what joy does. It makes us rich beggars. People who beg to give. People who don't grumble and complain and whine. If anyone had reason to do that, it was the Macedonians. We don't do that because we're overflowing with joy in God's grace. In any and all circumstance. In verse 5, probably my favorite verse in this entire text. In this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. you got to give yourself to God first. That's, the heart of the, that's, that's ultimately what this is all about. The money wasn't first, God was first. And when God is first, others are second, and I'm last, I'm third, when I have things in its proper place and priority and perspective, the budget, the schedule, the money follows. And it flows. It overflows to meet the needs of other people. And that's the key in all of it. That's the key in all. That's the heart of all of it. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Then Paul, you know what? He gives a name to this. He gives a name to these verses. You know what he calls it? In verse 8, love. You know what he calls it in verse 24, last verse of this chapter? Love. Give proof of your love. It's a test. And maybe it's not so much that we're proving to God something He already knows about us. Maybe it's as much about needing to prove something to ourselves. Maybe it's about proving something to those around us. You know, God wants you. He wants you so bad, He's made that clear. You know what, though? He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your money. It's His money already. He'll make it happen with or without our cooperation, but He's giving us the privilege, the blessing of being able to be involved, to participate, to be blessed by being generous. He wants you. He wants your love. He wants your heart, your soul, your mind. He wants all of you. And the only way that we can become the type of giver, the type of generous person that pleases God which sacrifices he is well pleased with by doing good and sharing with others, we read, is to give ourselves, all of ourselves, first to God. And how you use what he's entrusted to you as a steward proves whether or not you've given yourself first to the Lord. So if someone attempted to prove you love God, you love the church, you love uh, the gospel, you love the truth, you love the lost, you love those in need, could they do it? By looking at your bank statements, your budgets, your calendar, could they find, could they find sufficient proof? And does a person who claims to love those things, oh, I love the Lord. We sing that, I love the Lord. I love evangelism. Do we love those things if we're not giving scripturally and liberally? Time, talent, treasure. And if we aren't, Paul says, this is the proof of your love. This is proof that you do love God and other people. 
And so if we aren't generous in this way, we're violating the two greatest commandments. All the law summed up in. Love God with all your being, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what love looks like. This is what love looks like. I want my love to look like that. I want, your, I want our love to look just like this. Abundant joy in God's grace that overflows to meet the needs of other people. And I believe we've been given a great, practical, working, simple definition of exactly what love is, according to God. According to God's Word, because none of the other definitions matter. We're going to stand before God and give account of whether or not we love God, we love Jesus, we loved everyone else by this definition. He's saying what I described to you about what happened in Macedonia, how they responded to people who were in need, that's the definition of love. What they did was love. And so what we see here, the definition given essentially is love is joy. And God's grace that overflows to meet the needs of other people. Grace leads to joy, which results in, leads to generosity. And Paul calls that love. Generosity is love in action. Love proven. You can't be loving without giving, without being generous. Now, you can be giving without loving. The Pharisees, you tithe, but you neglected the weight of your matters, love, mercy, justice. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. We can give without loving God and other people and be a hypocrite and give for ulterior motives and ego and to be seen of men. But you cannot love without giving. You can't love anyone without giving something. Love is an action verb. That's why he says in verse 11, so now finish doing it so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. 1 John 3, 16 and 17, John writes, By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. The response, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, these, the, the, the resources, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? John's analogy here is that God sent and sacrificed His greatest treasure from heaven to earth to show His love, to prove His love for mankind. Therefore, in turn, mankind should be willing to give and sacrifice our earthly treasures to show our love for God and others. God's love was verified by the gift of His Son. Our love is verified by what we give. When one recognizes and appreciates what God gave and how much gave God gave on our behalf. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How in the world can we shut up our heart? Our checkbook, our calendar from other people. So notice the progression here. It starts with God's grace. Grace came. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Loved us, died for us, forgave us, gave us hope. Always starts with what? God. God's grace. Without grace, there's no generosity. There's nothing. We'd all be completely and utterly selfish. I'm having a hard enough time as it is. And we love because He first loved us. That's where it starts. It transformed the way we think. It transformed the way we feel. Therefore, it transformed the way we do. The way we act. That's where love starts. God's grace, Christ-centered, God-exalting, focused on God's generosity, God's goodness towards me. And you're in awe of that. You're amazed by it. Amazing grace. 
And you're inspired by the grace that loved and forgave and sent His Son to die on the cross for you and who not only forgave you in the past, continues to do that. In all of our failures and shortcomings, He continues to love me. He continues to give. He continues to forgive. And we can't fathom that. We can't fathom this indescribable love and generosity that one would give so much to people in so much need. And we are so inspired by that that in our own imperfect human way, we try to become like God. We, we try to become like that. We try to give like that. And to do that, we have to understand grace given, grace has to be accepted. Grace has to be received. We have to understand and appreciate unmerited favor. Because the generosity and the gratitude are proportional. You show your gratitude for what God created and gave and sustains, we talked about recently, as creator of the universe and sustainer of the universe, the time, the talent, the treasure He gave you by giving back. And if we don't do that, if we're not giving back, you know what it's saying? You know what the heart of that is when you really think about it? You don't think God was generous enough. You don't think God gave enough to make you generous, that He was a good enough provider, that He's provided enough for you to provide in return. If we are going to overflow in generosity and love for others, we must first overflow in joy and the grace of God. Again, this is what I want. This is how I want to be. This is how I want to live. This indestructible faith and hope and love and joy that can't be conquered. That can't be silenced or suppressed because it's all rooted. won't die because it's rooted all in God's grace. Rich young ruler, rich yet sorrowful. Macedonians, poor yet joyful. Because joy is in the heart, not the bank. They didn't wallow in self-pity or self-preservation. They simply gave and gave and gave. Riches of their generosity, the wealth of generosity, the riches were in their disposition, their heart to serve. Christ was their riches. Christ was their treasure. And I want those same riches for you. I want those same riches and treasures for me, for my children, for everyone. That we would treasure Christ above everything. Above money, above security, above comfort, above ease. And that that would result in lives that were lived overflowing in love. Lives that were lived overflowing in generosity. The joy was not dependent upon the absence of affliction or poverty. What is our joy dependent upon? What's its foundation? Because the foundation of our joy, if it's going to last, if it's going to bless, must be God's grace, not our goods. God's mercy, not our money. His money. Because the lie, again, the tendency, the temptation is to think, for, for Satan to convince us that when the poverty and the affliction and the adversity go away, then I'll be happy. That's how we think. That's not how they thought. Because you have joy right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of the affliction and the poverty is abundant joy. And this joy in God's grace is what frees us to be generous. Because when He's your treasure, when you're completely full and satisfied in Christ, you know what? My, when I understand and appreciate and experience that all my needs have been met in Christ, that frees me to live for the needs and interests of other people. And I can risk, I can lose, I can give because I have everything in Christ already. 
They gave above their means. You know what I take that to mean? They were willing to risk it. Time, talent, treasure, their life. That's why we pay the price for people around the world, even in India, halfway around the world. That's where evangelism, that's where benevolence starts. That's where it comes from. That's when our heart pursues it. That's when our heart goes after that. Generosity, love, blessing, giving, serving, helping people comes from joy overflowing in God's grace. It's the increasing uh, joy in Christ that decreases the anger and the envy and the selfishness and the stinginess. It's the only thing that allows us to, to love our enemies and give to our enemies. When we risk, when we pay the price, the cost to ourselves, Whatever that's costing us to share the joy of Christ with other people, that's when we love them. Then and only then do we love them. You see, loving others and having joy are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> you don't have to choose. In fact, you must not choose. That's the lie. That I mean, they're going to serve people and be unhappy or have joy and serve myself. You must not choose because you cannot have one without the other. One won't exist for long without the other. You can't love people without having joy and satisfaction in Christ, without knowing and understanding and appreciating my needs are met in Christ. You're not going to serve. The goal then is not just let's love other people so we can be happy, but really let's be so happy in Jesus that we serve other people. Let's be so full of Jesus that we empty ourselves to serve other people. Because if we don't pursue our joy in Christ and God, we won't find it. We won't have it. If we don't have it, we can't offer it. We can't give it. We can't be generous. We can't love because that's what love does. We give. Why? Why do we give? I plan, Lord willing, in a future study to talk in more depth about why we should give, the blessings of giving, all the ways that being generous blesses us and getting into specifics about why you should give, why we should want to give. But for now, I just want to say in the context here of these chapters, you know why we give? Because it proves our love for God and other people. Well, that's the, he's saying, prove your love for God and other people. In the whole context of chapters 8 and 9, it's all about giving, specifically your money. We give to support the needy. We see that in this context. We give to support gospel work and gospel workers. There's an abundant amount of verses we can look at. Support the local work, the local church and church workers. That's why we give. Because we live in a lost and dying and suffering and starving and needy world. Because we love the, the, the poor. We love those who are afflicted and we want to do something. Whatever we, we want to help. We want to be the change. Because we love the lost. And we want that same gospel that was shared with us and maybe our, our ancestors somewhere down the line that got to us. We want to share that with others too. The best product we've ever had. Lift up your eyes. Every good work the church can do in the name of Christ is the why. And we would evangelize the world if we gave like we could and like we should. If we gave, if we had the heart of the Macedonians, we'd turn the world upside down. Think about all the work that doesn't get done, that's not getting done. All the people who aren't hearing the gospel. All the people who aren't being helped. The Macedonian call because we aren't giving or we aren't giving enough. But you see, when we put our money in the Lord's work, our heart is in the Lord's work. And so I think 
the heart of this, the key verse in this entire chapter is verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Creator of the universe, sustainer of the universe, we talked about recently. King of kings, Lord of lords, created the entire universe, sustains the entire universe and all of the greatness, all of the power, all of the glory. Richest person forever, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, became in a moment of time the poorest person in the world. He emptied himself of all of the riches, all the glory, to give everything so that we could become rich, not necessarily in money, but in joy. That we might become rich in generosity, in spiritual, eternal riches, that we ultimately might be rich in love. He humbled himself from infinite heights to infinite depths, this unimaginable, indescribable condescension to be born in a cattle stall and die on a criminal's cross, as poor as you could get financially, born into a, a poor family, so poor he's born in a manger, he's born in a barn. Family so poor they can't offer the lamb for the firstborn. Law had a provision that you could offer turtle doves, birds. At the end of his life, at his death, he had no clothes. He didn't have a house. He was naked. He had nothing. He gave everything. He gave his very life for you. And as we sang, what are we giving? As we offer an invitation, will you give yours to him? The story of a little girl whose dad kept asking her for her pearls. She had these pearls that weren't necessarily worth much, but they were her prized possession. And every day her dad would ask, can I have your pearls? And she would re- re- decline. She refused. She refused. She refused. And eventually, he was persistent. She eventually one day said, fine, you, know, you can have my pearls. And you know what he said? I was just waiting for you to see how long it would take, how long you would hold on to those pearls so that I could take them and exchange them for something better. That's what money is. It's just a test. Prove your love. Prove your faith. Give it to God in a generous, cheerful way with joy, and He'll give you something better, something infinitely better. He'll give you the real thing. Something that lasts. Can't rot, rust, corrupt, be stolen from you. He'll give you the pearl of great price. And whatever's preventing you from doing that, for giving it all to Jesus, all to Jesus, I surrender, whatever's causing you to hold on too tight, so you don't let go, is junk. That's all it is. He's offering you infinite, eternal treasure that lasts. Think again about the rich young ruler learning the lesson, learning from his mistake, his decision. What do you love more than God? Money, relationships, activities, repent. All repentance is turn away, leave it behind, and move to God. That's what repentance is. That's what repentance does. Lay it all at the altar. Say, I'm giving this to you because I love you more. Because if you're not willing to do that, if you don't do that in this life, you'll go away sorrowful forever. Just like the rich young ruler, rich with nothing. And so as we offer an invitation, if you need to go all in this morning, being immersed in Christ, crucifying the old man, laying all the sin in the blood of the cross at the cross, be resurrected to walk in newness of life, go all in. Surrender all to Jesus.
It's the greatest return on investment you'll ever find, the greatest deal you'll ever find. Maybe you're here and you've done that previously, and as a Christian, you need to reaffirm that. Maybe one thing is holding you back. Maybe it's more than one thing holding you back. Have the faith. Have the humility. Have the joy to say, you know what? I love Jesus more. I want the real thing. Everything I am, everything I have is yours. Just tell me what you want me to do with it. Here am I, send me. When you make that your anthem, your life song, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never go away ultimately sorrowful. You'll never find God unfaithful and and wanting. And the misconception is that we trade all the things we have for lesser joy. Jesus said, you gave all that up for more to gain a hundredfold in this life and more importantly, in the life to come. He went and sold all that he had to have more, to have the very best. You don't get less joy, you get more joy. It's not about what we gave up, it's about what we gain in Christ. And if you want that this morning, if you need to give yourself first to the Lord, he offers this invitation. Have the faith, have the courage, have the humility. Come in faith, come in joy and receive all that he's promised to give you in Christ. If you have a spiritual need, surrender it to Jesus as we stand and sing.